Well, if you would all please turn in your Bibles uh, once again to the book of Malachi. Please turn to the book of Malachi. That song was um, so fitting, as hopefully you will see. Um, so fitting for what we're going to look at today in the book of Malachi. Remember, it's the very last book of the Old Testament. should be easy for you to find. And go ahead and turn to chapter 4. Uh, chapter 4. I'm just going to read the, the last three verses of the book of Malachi, um, just by way of introduction to our book today. Malachi chapter 4, beginning of verse 4, says... Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Let's pray. Well, Lord, Lord, we know that for whatever was written in former times was written for our benefit, for our instruction, so that through perseverance and in, and in the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so, Lord, I pray that through these scriptures, through these words, that we might have hope, the hope that you foretold in centuries past, really since the inception of mankind, you've held out this hope to man, and I pray that we would grab a hold of it today, Lord, for those of us who have had this hope, that we would squeeze even tighter to it, and for those who may be or who have never grabbed on to the hope that is in Christ, that through the book of Malachi they would see their great need for Christ, and that by your grace they would reach out and grab a hold of him, knowing that you grab a hold of us and hold us, and that they would rest in Christ for the rest of their days. Lord, we sit here with our Bibles open once again. What a grace, what a mercy of you that you have for your people, that we can sit in comfort today and, and open up our Bibles. Lord, let this time not be in vain. Please bless me. Please bless my words. Bless all of our ears. Bless all of our hearts. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. You may all be seated. Well, for, for those of you who were, who were here last week, we actually began our study, our survey over the book of Malachi. And what we've already seen in the first two chapters of this book is what we've been seeing is God bringing many rebukes, many condemnations upon the people of Israel for the many transgressions that they have been committing against God and against the covenant that he made with them at Mount, uh, Mount Sinai. You know, I pointed out last week, and what I think is so interesting just about the timing of, of the writing of the book of Malachi, at the timing that all these condemnations are being brought against the people of Israel, all the, the litany of their sins are so great at this time. What's so interesting about that is that God had just, prior to the writing of Malachi, had just brought the people out of 
the bondage that they were in 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 under Babylonian captivity. God had just restored to them uh, their city, Jerusalem. He just restored to them the, the city around the wall, giving them protection, and he restored to them the temple um, where they would come to worship him. God had just done all these things for them, but instead of finding the people of Israel entrenched in grateful worship, instead we find them very stagnant. We find the people of God with, uh, full of half-hearted devotion to him. It's very ironic that we find the people of God in this condition after such a mighty work of God. In the first two chapters of Malachi, we found God condemning and confronting Israel for many sins, including questioning God's love for them. Um, He condemned them for bringing defiled and blemished sacrifices to his altar. God directly attacked the priest's lack of godly leadership. And we saw God calling the people to account for being willing to divorce their wives to go and marry unbelieving pagan um, idol worshipers. And even though God had laid out for the people, I think in a very clear and a very straightforward way, all the, 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 the many ways in which they have violated his com- uh, the covenant that God made with them, We saw how Israel in their self-deception just really can't seem to understand why God is not blessing them. We saw in chapter 2, verse 17, that they actually had the nerve to ask, where is the God of justice? Now, God's answer to that question really began, I think, in chapter 3, verse 1, where there he said, to, to answer the question of where is the God of justice, well, God's answer was he was in fact coming And he would come suddenly to his temple. God, with his response to their question, was reminding Israel in a sense that you better be careful what you ask for. Because with the coming of the Lord and with any time the very presence of the Lord is there, there's also very necessary consequences. And that's what led God to ask, then ask them some questions Um, In chapter 3, verse 2, he asked them, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? You see, the Lord's coming would bring about uh, a sanctifying judgment for the people of Israel. The dross and the chaff of the people would be burnt away by his coming and all the rest who uh, would be left and would survive would be refined, it said, like silver, like gold, And they'd be able to present to the Lord pleasing sacrifices and righteousness. And so we're going to pick up now in the text where we left off in chapter 3, verse 5. We're going to look at the second half of the book of Malachi today. And uh, what we're going to see is is really, I think, nearly an identical format to the first two chapters of the book. If you remember, the way I see Malachi being laid out is in that law and gospel Um, presentation. And we're actually going to see the exact same format today because God is once again going to bring the people of Israel to their knees by exposing their many sins before him. And he is also once again going to reiterate that promise that the Lord himself will be coming and that he will be restoring the people to righteousness and will be removing the curse um, that that is certainly due for the people's covenant breaking. So let's pick up now in that law gospel presentation in Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, and 
as we pick up on the law gospel presentation, we're certainly picking up on the law side of that. And once again, we're picking up on the, the law breaking side of that. And so let's just see in Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, all of these uh, additional sins that the Lord is about to um, hold his people accountable for. Malachi chapter 3, verse 5 says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be swift. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And so here we're continuing to see God hold Israel accountable for uh, many sins. And, but notice that, that these sins now, many of them are not only sins that the people are committing directly against God himself, but these are actually sins that the people are committing one against another. We also see in these sins that God likewise holds his people accountable uh, for sins of omission as well as, sin, as sins of commission. Um, that simply means that you don't have to do something in order to sin. Not doing something that you should would likewise be sin. If you look at this list here in verse 5, the specific sins listed here of lying to one another, robbing your workers of their wages, not caring for the widows and orphans and aliens, these are sins against fellow man, a fellow man who is made in the image of God. And so, therefore, to sin against another image-bearer is to sin against the God whose image they are made in. You see, that's just the connection that God makes at the very end of verse 5 by saying that these kinds of sins, these sins against one another, these sins of the social justice order, these are sins that characterize those who do not fear the Lord of hosts. That's really the issue because all sin is a manifestation of a more basic, a more foundational problem, namely a lack of the fear of the Lord. And so with the litany of convictions that God is bringing upon the people of Israel, all of them from the very beginning of Malachi up to this point, um, you might wonder, um, how is it that this people have not already been wiped out by the God of justice? And verse 6 now is going to give us some insight into why the people of Israel still remain. Verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. And so why has Israel not been entirely consumed by the judgment of God? Well, the answer here in verse 6 that God gives, the answer is that of his immutability. His immutability, the fact that he does not change is God's answer to that question. But what is it about the fact that God does not change that's actually benefiting the people of God here in their sinful situation? Well, I think the answer is hinted at, at the way that God refers to his people he calls them, if you'll notice, O sons of Jacob. 
O sons of Jacob. You see, these wayward and backslidden people are descendants of Abraham. They're descendants of Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs. These are the men with whom God has entered into covenant. A covenant that began as far back as Genesis 12 with Father Abraham. A covenant that would include the promise that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. A covenant that, that included the fact that his descendants would continue until from them would come one seed in particular. A seed that would bless all of the nations by bringing to completion the everlasting covenant spoken of in Genesis 17.7. The covenant whereby Abraham's descendants would be united to God in such a way that he would be their God and they would be his people forever. You see, because God does not change, his promises do not change, and his promises will be fulfilled. And therefore, there would always be a remnant among the sons of Jacob through which God's purposes would be brought to fruition and this is why Jacob is not consumed. Moving on in the text, as we see here in verse 7 now, as God extends his grace to his chosen people at the end of verse 7, he's saying to them, return to me, and I will return to you. But what do we find? The stiff-necked people respond back to God. In verse 7 they say, how shall we return how shall we return back to you? And what we're seeing in this reply back to God is that the people really do not grasp the reality of how far they've fallen from God. By asking God, how shall we return? It just implies the fact that they don't see how far off the path of obedience they've gone. Israel can't imagine what else they could possibly be doing to be more faithful to God. The people are completely blind to the multitude of sins and errors that they've been making on a daily basis, sins that the Lord has already in Malachi laid before them. And still at this point they say to God, what else do you want from us? What else could we possibly do to please you? Well, if they've still to fill the weight of all their transgressions thus far, the Lord has another straw to lay upon the camel's back. And uh, that, that euphemism really doesn't seem to be that appropriate because the sin that we're going to look at now, the sin that God brings um, to Israel's attention is no small piece of straw, but this is a log, a great log, a log that should certainly break the camel's back. Because look at verse 8. God says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. You see, robbing God is a very serious crime, I think we could all agree. And it's a crime that had obviously become such a widespread issue, such a widespread problem, as God says in verse 9, that this curse for this crime 
was upon the whole nation. I think that that implies that they were all being taken away with this transgression. Obviously, a little leaven had in just a short time already run its course through all of Israel. And to answer the apparently ignorant people's uh, question to God of, how are we robbing you? How, God, exactly are we robbing you? Well, God answers them very specifically. He says in tithes and offerings. You see, God in the Old Covenant prescribed uh, set amounts for the people's giving. And instead of giving to God what was his, what he required of them, they were keeping some back. And by keeping some of their money back from the God who required it of them, in so doing, they were actually robbing God. Now, of course, I think it goes without saying um, to us that God does not need, in one sense, anything from us. You know, Psalm 50 says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything that the world contains is his. But God does have purposes for the requiring of our giving. The people of God's giving to him has always been a means by which God accomplishes his purposes in this world through his people. And these givings here that God is requiring of the people, this old covenant tithe and offerings um, that, that, that's, that God's speaking of in our text, um, that these were the means by which uh, that God supported the Levitical priests who worked in the temple. These tithes and offerings went to uh, support the needy in Israel, support the widows, support the orphans. And now I think it's safe to say that, um, I think just from hearing most of y'all's testimonies, as, as most of us grew up in, in typical evangelical churches, I think we're all familiar with the word tithe. Um, I know, just as I mentioned, that the fact that we were going to study the book of Malachi to many of you, but I think as I ended up starting to keep track, is that probably 75% of you um, quoted uh, when I told you that we're going to be studying the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, will a man rob God? You're all familiar, for one reason or another, with this text. I'm not sure what that means or why all of you were so familiar with that text um, very interesting to me that it wasn't the messianic prophecies or something like that, but obviously somebody has preached this text to you before. Um, so, but I think we're all familiar with, with what a tithe is. Tithe means a tenth. Tithe means 10%. And I think if you were like me, that most of us were raised under the conviction that as long as you did the math, as long as you calculated the 10% of your paycheck and put it in the plate as it passed by, um, you felt good. You felt that you were falling right in, long with all of, uh, right in line with all of the faithful people of God since Mount Sinai. You probably felt like you're fulfilling your duty to God to give as he has always prescribed. But it's interesting because one small problem comes up when we take the language of, of the tithe here, um, this tithe from the Old Testament, when we take it to mean simply a reference to 10% of, of whatever's on our paychecks. Because in reality, the tithes and the offerings that God's requiring from his people under the old covenant, uh, they actually amounted to much more than simply 10% when all was said and done. And so 
I know for the men in our, in our recently in our men's study in the, in the Saturday morning fellowship, we actually looked at this in the last book that we studied in the chapter on giving. We, we went through this old um, covenant, Old Testament requirement of tithing, but I wanted to give you guys who, who didn't go through that book with us just a quick rundown of the Old Testament tithes and offerings that were required under the Old Covenant. And it did start with what came to be known as the Lord's tithe. Um, this was prescribed in Numbers 18, Leviticus 27, and elsewhere. This was the standard um, 10% um, of whatever you brought in, whatever you gained. You gave 10% off the top um, as part of the Lord's tithe. It was whether financially, whether from your grain, whether from animals, you gave 10% to the Lord. That was the Lord's tithe. But see, it didn't stop there because God also prescribed, in, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, what came to be known as the festival tithe. This was an annual tithe um, that was taken up annually at the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of their celebrations that they took part in that, that really commemorated and celebrated God's faithfulness to take care of the people um, through their Exodus wanderings, but at the festival tithe, um, at the Feast of Tabernacles, once again, every year, annually, everyone was required to give 10% of what you, what you owned, what you had. So once again, you would give another 10%. So already, just with these two tithes required under the, under the Old Covenant, you're already at 20% of everything that you had. But in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 28, there's also the poor tithe, the poor tithe. This was a tithe that was gathered not yearly, but once every three years. But once again, in order to take care of the poor and needy and, and to make that kind of collection for the people, once every three years, you were to gather up 10% once again of everything that you owned. And you were to give 10% um, to God of everything that you owned. So that's once every three years. If you break it down annually, it's 333 percent annually of what God required of you to take care of the poor for the poor tithe. And so under the old covenant giving requirements and under the, just the simple tithing requirements of the Old Testament, the people of God were already now at 23.3 percent of everything that they had. 23.3 percent. And that doesn't even include many of the other additional givings that God required of his people. Leviticus 19 said that you can't um, harvest the corners of your fields, so that that might be as well given to the poor. Um, there was tithes that were taken up when it was time to do constructions to the temple. Um, God required that of the people several times to, 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 to construct the temple. There were, as you're probably familiar with, the first fruit offerings. There was the free will offerings. All of these were on top of the 23.3% that God required of his people. And so at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, under the old covenant, um, to be giving your tithes and your offerings um, probably ended up being well over 25% of what the people had. A quarter of what they had was given to the, to the Lord as requirement. Now, as you think about that, do you still feel proud? Um, do you still feel satisfied with your 10%? It's quite convicting to me to see what the people of God were giving under the old covenant. And so naturally, and I will answer the question, so what about us? Um, because clearly, brothers and sisters, we don't see 
the, presi- the precise mosaic stipulations for giving of these exact tithing requirements coming over into the new covenant. I don't see that in, in the New Testament. Um, the required givings that coincide and coincided with all of these festivals, these givings that were required that, that, that coincided with these celebrations, um, I think obviously these, these givings uh, passed away with the passing away of those festivals and those celebrations that were all typological, of course, of Jesus Christ. And so as Christ fulfilled those shadows, um, the givings that went away with the, uh, that went with those also passed away. But be sure of this. Be sure that the act of worship to God through giving to the church um, obviously continues in the New Covenant. Um, it doesn't take long to do just a brief survey throughout the New Testament and look at um, illustrations and the actual examples of giving that are mentioned under the New Covenant um, because what you will see is continued illustrations of great sacrificial giving, even under the New Covenant. Um, you remember the scene of the early church from Acts chapter 4? Um, were there, people were giving and selling their whole houses. They were selling entire tracts of land to make sure that the people of God, that no one went without. Um, we have those classic examples that we've actually had Pastor Emilio preach to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 on New Covenant, New Testament giving. We're there, the Apostle Paul is boasting about the Macedonian churches, how, how they gave to, the, to help out the Jerusalem churches. And Paul's boasting about them, and in the language he uses, it's amazing because in, in 2 Corinthians, Go ahead and turn there because we're going to read some verses from 2 Corinthians um, chapter 9. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, just listen to the language that Paul uses to boast upon these Macedonians. He says, out of their deep poverty, they gave. That's, that's, that's the language he uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 2. And then in, in the very next verse, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 3, Paul says they were even giving beyond their ability. They were even giving beyond their ability. That's amazing. And Paul boasts um, in them for this. But the text I wanted to read from chapter 9, it's because in the midst of this boasting on the Macedonian churches for their giving, it's, it's in this context that the Apostle Paul lays down what I think are obviously some enduring truths concerning giving. The first truth is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, where there Paul said this, Now this I say, he who, spa- or he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now for those of you who have reference Bibles, um, if you were to look at the side there at, at maybe a reference that's made, it's probably going to reference you back to the book of Proverbs, chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, for the foundation of what the Apostle Paul is stating here. Paul's reiterating a truth from the Old Covenant. And so obviously this, this truth, this reality, that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, who, who, he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, obviously this truth is transcending the covenants. It's a truth that has always been true. And just to restate that truth, what Paul's saying is that your giving 
will directly correlate to the blessing that you receive from God. Now, obviously, obviously this blessing is not the blessing that the prosperity preachers would have you believe in. This blessing is not a guarantee that your bank account will grow exponentially as how you give to the church. No, brothers and sisters, but listen, the blessing is much greater than that. The blessing is much greater than that. The blessing that you can count on is one of a more intimate walk with your God. A more real and a more personal relationship with Christ as you sacrifice for your Savior and as you're willing to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. You see, as you discipline yourself to give more and more, you will at the same time be loosening your grip on the things of this world. And you will find that you will be able to begin to enjoy the reality of what the Lord Jesus himself spoke of when he said that you can store up in heaven treasures for yourself in a place where neither rust nor moth can destroy them. You will find joy in in stacking up eternally enduring blessings. Now see, again, we don't have the exact stipulations of the Mosaic Law to follow as our guidelines for how we're to give. But if you're still there in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, notice what Paul says immediately following uh, Paul's reiteration of the truth from verse 8, that he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, because he goes on to make another very direct statement concerning um, giving, concerning our motivations for giving, concerning how much maybe we should give and, and how this works out, because I know this is what we all want to know. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Paul says, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. You see, giving is not an issue of meeting any specific, blanket, universal dollar amount for everyone. But as Paul says, this is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And that could be a problem because dealing with our hearts, is, it, it can be tough because our hearts are deceitful above all things, the Bible tells us. And just like Israel, we love our money. But note also what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, where your money is, or think of it like this, where you spend your money, this is where you can truly know where your heart is. You see, this statement by the Lord Jesus is very helpful because it's really an objective measure by which you can see where your heart is. It gives you the opportunity to test your heart, to see if your heart is truly in the world or if your heart is for Christ's bride, for his church. 
And I just thought of one practical application of this truth that the Lord Jesus spoke of, one objective way that you can practically test your heart in this way that the Lord calls, is that you can pull out that little piece of paper that we handed out in January. I'm told that piece of paper is called an annual contribution statement. And what you can do is you can pull out that piece of paper if you can find it and you can look at that number, that that number that you gave to Christ's bride over the last year and, and you can sit before the Lord with that number. Contemplate that number before the Lord and test your heart. That's a very real number. Once again, the new covenant does not provide for us a, a set number. But one thing I can tell you, brothers and sisters, is that your giving directly correlates to your sanctification. And yes, it's true, all of our sanctifications are in a process, and we all need to grow in this area, just as, of course, we need to grow in every area, but take heart that there is no limit to the amount that you can grow in this area. But brothers and sisters, the reason I, I, and I know all of you, it seems that you know this text, um, but I devoted time to it because I do not want anyone in this church um, to be found on that day guilty as Israel was of robbing God. And so that's why we, that's why we spent some time on that text Um, But let's move on now because what we're going to see now is um, Malachi finally addressed the last rebuke. Finally, the last rebuke. I know we've seen a lot of them. Um, Pick up in chapter 3, verse 13 now. The last rebuke to the people of Israel in the book of Malachi. In verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13 now. It says, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. See, brothers and sisters, from what I can tell, the people of Israel have hit rock bottom. They've hit rock bottom. They've come to the conclusion that it's vain to serve God, that there's no benefit to keeping his charge In their eyes, it was the arrogant and the wicked who were the ones profiting and escaping God's judgment scot-free. As I read through this, I immediately thought of Psalm 73. Um, If if there you to recall, it's the the psalm that 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 very open confession of Asaph. If you remember from Psalm 73, where there Asaph describes himself as one whose feet came close to stumbling. He said his steps had almost slipped when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. But see, the difference between Asaph, it seems, and and all of Israel here is that Asaph's feet came close to stumbling, whereas Israel has altogether fallen. 
They've cast away their faith in God. They've come to the conclusion that serving God is not worth it. And brothers and sisters, that is the thinking, that is a thought of apostasy. That's the thinking of full-out apostasy. And whether the people of Israel had actually been verbalizing these blasphemous thoughts out loud or not, I don't know, but it matters not, just as we've all learned, because all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows what we're thinking. God knows what we're thinking in our hearts. But it's amazing that even in the midst of full-out apostasy, just as God had promised in chapter 3, verse 6, and in order to remain faithful to his covenant, um, he will not consume them all, but that he will, in fact, keep a remnant for himself. And as we pick up now in this next section, verses 16 and following, um, this section, this little pericope here, beginning, beginning in verse 16, is as I studied this book, came to be my favorite part of the book of Malachi because we're going to see now the reaction from, from really what is, seems to be a select few of the people of Israel. And this reaction is every pastor's, it's every preacher's dream come true. If you remember what we've been seeing, what, what the people have been hearing from the very beginning of Malachi for over three chapters now God's been crushing his people under the weight of their sins. But God has not only been bringing the, he has not only been bringing the, the, the weight of his law to bear on them, but he's also already promised the good news that the Lord himself would come to them. And it was through the Lord's coming that there would be a purification, that there would be a, a renewal of the people's right standing before God and, and, and the renewing of uh, the people able, being able to make proper worship. But notice the reaction of these blessed elect who have just received all of these words from God. Um, notice the reaction in verse 16. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. They spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. You see, let me tell you why I love that and why I loved it so much is, is look what's occurring here amongst, amongst these few they reacted to the word of God preached to them. They spoke to one another, it says, which most assuredly uh, gives the connotation that they were speaking to each other to stir up one another. Speaking to one another to, to, to stir each other up, to, pre to prepare themselves, to prepare their brethren for everything that Malachi had spoken about, to stir each other up, for the coming day of the Lord. The people wanted to be actively, be, be doers of the word. They didn't want to any longer be deluding themselves, sit, sitting under the word of God, sitting under the word of God, the preaching of the word of God. They didn't want to be deluding themselves as, as just hearers. And they didn't want their brethren to be deluded either. They spoke to each other. And as I read this, I just thought it was a beautiful picture of everything we've been, we've, we've been hearing about in the book of Hebrews, specifically Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. I thought, wow, I'm seeing the, the book of Hebrews, um, chapter 3, being played out in Malachi. I'll just read to you again Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. It says, Take care, brethren, 
that there be not in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day by day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, not only did the people of God react, but as we read on, we see God reacting as well. As we read on from verse 16, it said, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him. For those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name, they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and between the one who does not serve him. And so contrary to those who back in verse 14 were saying that it's vain to serve God, no, God is in fact very acutely aware of everyone who fears his name and everything that they're doing. He even has a book of remembrance is the way that it, it phrases it, a book of remembrance that certainly includes meticulous records concerning his people. And it's with this book that we can know that not one faithful deed will be forgotten, not one faithful deed will go unrewarded on that day. The day of judgment will be a great day for those who fear and serve the Lord. It will be a great day of reward. It will be a great day of retribution. And although that day of judgment will certainly, I think this was interesting, although the day of judgment will certainly involve our good works, the books will be opened. The Bible tells us our deeds will be brought to bear. But we know, brothers and sisters, that we don't want to think that it's our good deeds that will be the basis for our entrance into heaven. We, we know that. We know that our justification, that our right standing before God is based on our faith in this Messiah that Malachi has been predicting and telling the people about. Um, but I know sometimes it's strange to think about as you, as you read in the book of Re Revelation even as well, how the books are opened and our deeds um, are brought forth. I think the simplest way just to think about that reality of, um, as we're trying to keep um, justification by faith alone intact, as we read those verses, um, I think a simple way to think about just that whole um, scenario playing out on that last day is that our deeds will be brought to bear and our deeds will be a justification of our justification. And see, what I mean by that is that our changed and righteous lives will bear testimony to the reality that God's gracious, sanctifying work has taken place in our lives. Um, by the exposing of our deeds on that day, uh, we will be working out what James said when he said that we can show our faith by our works. And so on Judgment Day, the, the wheat and the tares will be separated and based on the reality that there are those who have in fact been sanctified by the grace of God and can rightly be referred to as those who fear God, there are also those who can rightly be referred to and categorized as the evildoers, 
as the chaff. So let's read now in chapter 4, verse 1, this comparison that God gives to the, the fate of these two different groups, the righteous and the wicked, beginning with the fate of the wicked, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. It will leave them neither root nor branch. You see this description here of the fire of God's judgment leaving neither root nor branch speaks to the total undoing of those who will come under God's judgment on that day. Not certainly that the people will be completely annihilated from existence. Um, we know because the Bible um, expounds upon the reality of hell in other texts, um, uh, Matthew 25, 46, as well as many other, where we get the descriptions that um, punishment goes on. There is the gnashing of teeth. There is the worm that never dies. But see, the description he's giving here of there being neither root nor branch left the description's leaving us with the reality that for those who come under and who are not prepared for the day of judgment, there will be nothing good left for them. There will be no hope. There will be no grace. There will be no chance of ever being relieved of their torments. I hate talking about hell. I, th I hate thinking about hell. It's, it's an overwhelming truth. Um, it, it's, it's, I can't even fathom the depths of eternal punishment. I mean, I talk about it a lot. I, I preach it when we do open-air preaching, especially. I, I warn people. I, I, I quite often say, think about how powerful God is, the God who created everything by, by just speaking it. Realize for a moment and ponder how powerful he is. Now just imagine if God's power and his wrath was directed towards you. Can you imagine? I can't imagine how, how people will, will withstand it. Obviously, God will, will fit them with bodies that can withstand torture forever. But the doctrine of hell, oh wow, it's, in one sense I can imagine why people don't believe that, why they don't want to believe that. But clearly, even here, even in the Old Testament, we see the reality of of the fiery punishment and, and just punishment of God. But notice here, as, as, as verse 2 begins, because we have um, one of these contrasting conjunctions that results in a contrast of infinitely antithetical destinations for mankind. The evildoers go to the burning furnace, but for you, verse 2 says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. What a contrast, is it not? You see, there's no greater polarity, there's no greater opposites 
then the destiny of the wicked versus the destiny of those who have had the sun of righteousness to shine down upon them. You see, we on that day will be given a triumph over our, over our enemies. And the description given for our reaction on that day, did you see? It says that we will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You see, that just gives me the image that we will be so enthralled with ecstasy that we will be dancing for joy. We will be dancing for joy. Malachi's prophetic word to Israel is, is drawing to a close as he leaves Israel here with these, these very vivid descriptions of these only two options, the only two fates that lie ahead for mankind, eternal punishment and eternal bliss. But see, before he wraps up his prophecy completely, Malachi gives one last word to the people. And I think as we see these last three verses, this last word, the last three verses of Malachi are a perfect summary of everything we've seen. The, the last three verses are a perfect summarization of the whole book of Malachi. I would dare even say the last three uh, verses of the book of Malachi are a summary of the entire Old Testament. And so let's look at this summary. First, in verse 4, closing remarks, uh, closing remarks from Malachi. First he says in verse 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb, in Mount that's Mount Sinai, for all of Israel. Remember the law of Moses, he says. Malachi ends by pointing the people back to the law of God. The law that has just reproved and convicted the people over and over for all of their covenant breaking. But why is this a helpful reminder for the people? Why is looking back to God's rules helpful? Is God through Malachi telling the people, remember the law, don't forget the law, just try harder um, do better at keeping the law, and maybe one day you'll reach the point where God will now accept you. No, I don't think that's why um, they're to be recalling the law. And so I thought just briefly, let's remind ourselves quickly of the purpose of God's law. And the two texts that I want us to reference on the, on the function, on the purpose that God had for the giving of his law, they're two vitally important texts. I hope that you know them all. Um, the first, if you want to turn there quickly, is Romans chapter 3, verse 19. I think to have um, a vital, uh, it's vital to have a proper biblical theology concerning God's law. Because if you think about it, um, the giving of God's law, the expounding upon God's law, makes up the majority of our Bibles. If you just think about how much Bible is devoted to the giving of the law and, and the expounding and the working out of the people and, and the not keeping of God's law, um, it's crucial that we understand what God was doing that for. Why did God give his law? What was he trying to teach us? Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. 
Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, hopefully all of you are already familiar with that text. I just want to remind you of where it is. If you don't know it, you need to to know it. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through God's law comes the knowledge that we are lawbreakers, that we are sinful. The the law exposes our sin. It brings us um, uh, under accountability to God. It brings us under, uh, really, uh, a guilt before God. And that's helpful. That's good. Because the other text, if you, don't, if you haven't guessed it yet, I guess if you haven't heard enough of my open-air preaching, the next text is Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. I think it's another, just, it's so helpful in understanding the purpose behind God's law. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says, Therefore the law, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. I know I've already run over time, but I just have to say, I noticed it this morning just in my last review of this sermon. It's so interesting to me that in both of these uh, uh, recapitulations of the purpose of God's law, as it's telling us what God's law was for, in both instances, it's saying the law is teaching justification by faith. I thought that was interesting. Um. But notice here, again, the law is our tutor to lead us to Christ. The law shows us, as Romans 3.19 said, that we're guilty. It shows us our need for a Savior. It shows us our need for, uh, it shows us the fact that we're not going to be justified by our works, that there must be another way. We must put our hope and our faith in this one that God has promised. And see, for for the true Jews in Israel... For the Israelites who were circumcised in their hearts, the law was a helpful tool by which God's holiness and righteousness was revealed. And conversely, their unrighteousness was also revealed. The law of God brings man guilty, and it brings him in a desperate need for a Savior. And a Savior is just who God is promising. But someone must come first. Verse 5. Verse 5, behold, he says, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, this prophecy of this this coming one to prepare the way for the day of the Lord, this prophecy is surely parallel, it's surely complementary to the prophecy we we, we looked at last week from uh, chapter 3, verse 1, where in chapter 3, verse 1, the preparatory forerunner for the coming of the Lord, they are called my messenger. Here in chapter 4, verse 5, this forerunner um, for the coming Lord is referred to as Elijah the prophet, And it's just one more instance where I'm so glad that we're on this side of the completion of the canon, that we don't have to guess um, who this this Elijah the prophet would be, this returning of Elijah the prophet. No, we know that our New Testaments teach us that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of this prophecy of this coming Elijah. Um, That angel that appeared to John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, um, 
confirmed this to Zacharias as he, pre- as he prepared Zacharias for the calling that John would have on his life. In Luke 1.17, he said, just listen, I'll read it to you. It is he, speaking of John, who will go as a, as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And then he quotes Malachi, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. You see, the, the angel quoted this prophecy from Malachi confirming John the Baptist was going to, in fact, fulfill this prophecy. But I think it's, it's important just to note concerning this prophecy that the angel doesn't say that John the Baptist is Elijah. But in fact, the angel makes a, the necessary distinction that that John the Baptist is coming in the spirit and in the power of Elijah, and therefore is how he's fulfilling this prophecy concerning Elijah. Um, Some of you may wonder about how in in the Gospel of John, chapter 121, when when the Jews come and ask John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And he answers, no. And you may think, why does he answer no? Well, obviously, I think even John was making that distinction that he's not actually Elijah. Um. But as you think about this this preparer uh, for the coming of the Lord, just think, what was John's primary message? What was the forerunner for the coming of the Lord's primary message? What is the fitting response for knowing that the Lord himself is coming? Well, John's message was repentance. Repent. John preached repentance to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. And as we know, as Christ came, he likewise preached repentance. And so to actually close now, um, why, think about this, why did Israel, why does everyone in the world actually need to heed the calling of the book of Malachi? Why does everybody need to heed uh, the weight of the law? Why does everyone need to be prepared for the coming day of the Lord? Why heed this warning? Well, there's many reasons actually, but the main reasons that that we've seen as we study the book of Malachi are this. Number one, we should heed the warning and we should worship the Lord rightly and we should repent rightly because the Lord deserves our obedience and our worship. That was God's argument. That was God's himself argument in Malachi chapter 1 verse 14 for why we should worship him rightly. God said, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. Another reason that we should repent, another reason that we should prepare ourselves for the coming Christ is because We need Christ. We need Christ because the very last word of the book of Malachi, the curse. This is why we need Christ. We have all been cursed since Adam because of our sin and because of our rebellion to God. In the the fruition, the, the end, the telos of the greatest curse that there ever was will come Um, to fruition on the great and terrible day of the Lord, Revelation uh, 20.15 speaks of it, when it says, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of the life, that he will be thrown in the lake of fire. But the good news is for us, brothers and sisters, that God has not left himself without a witness. Uh, From the time that Malachi finished writing um, this book, um, there was... 400 years of silence. 
And so obviously God wanted the people um, to, 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 to sit and to ponder and to allow these last words to marinate um, in their minds. And that God wanted his people to feel, to feel the weight of his law and to anticipate the coming of Christ. And Christ did indeed come, as we all know. Christ came. Uh, but just as I said last time, that I think we are in a very similar situa- situation to Israel in that we are to heed the warnings of Malachi uh, because Christ is coming again. And we're to find our hope. We're to find our protection in this prophesied Messiah who's going to come back just as certainly as he came the first time. Let's pray. Well, Father, I just thank you, God, for your faithfulness. God, we thank you that you do not change. We thank you that what you have said in your scriptures will stand. Lord, we thank you that your script, that we have your word. We thank you that, we've, that you've spoken. We thank you that your word is inerrant. We thank you that what you say is true and that we can sit here today with our Bibles knowing truth, knowing absolute truth, that we can know for certain that the Lord of glory, that on one day the skies will split and the Lord of glory will return. And Lord, my prayer is that everyone in this room right now will be ready. Lord, that if there's any of us who are not ready, if there's any of us who are, who are yet prepared for the presence of the Lord, that you would be gracious, Lord, that you would work, just as Brother John preached to us, that, that, that your spirit, God, would do a work of grace in all of our lives, that we would all be ready that we, that we would all desire, that we'd be in such a place that, that we would know for certain that there would be no doubt that we are yours, that we would welcome your coming, that we would all be able to pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. So, Lord, be gracious. Lord, let us be as the, as the Israelites who that grace of God was obviously working in, who spoke to one another, who prepared each other for that day. Let our church be a a preparatory place for your return. May sanctification, may salvations take place in our church, Lord. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.